always uh, a great time to visit with Brother Glenn, Miss Paula, and Julie, and so glad that the Lord brought them our way, and so we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'll let you at it, Brother Glenn. Come on up, just get that one started, then you'll come up. All right, cue the first one, Brother Kenneth, and then after that, Brother Glenn. i 
Good evening, everyone. We're glad to be back again with you. It's been a while. And thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to come, Brother Michael. And thank you all for being here tonight to listen to us. We've enjoyed already meeting with the class in the back. And I'm looking forward to sharing some more things with you all here. Why are you crying, Karen? What's wrong with you? Because that's where we were. A lot of the pictures that you saw right there were when Brother Michael and Karen were with us over there last year. And some of the pictures I'm getting ready to show you, I have another slideshow that I want to show you in just a moment. We'll show you some more. So you get all of that crying over with right now, okay? We're so glad to be able to come back and report to you the progress of the seminary and remote island ministries. We, uh, we're humbled and we're thankful for your continued support of the work. You know, month to month you have given sacrificially to help this work move forward. And uh, I can never, ever say thank you enough to this church for everything that you have given, both financially and also through your prayers and your interest in the work in general. Um, we're looking forward to a great year coming up in 2014. I'm headed back to the field in 11 days from now. And from this time through the end of the year, it's going to be an incredibly busy time for us. But I know that the Lord is going to bless it. We're continuing to work on the ship, of course. We have things going on in the seminary. I was telling the class in the back, many of you heard this, during our VBS season in April and May, in four remote locations where remote island ministries conducted Bible school, we had an average attendance of 767 and 135 professions of faith. You can see by that a little bit of what your mission investment is accomplishing down there among those really remote islands of the southern Philippines. We are poised to begin the work not just in the Philippines, but throughout the region. And uh, thinking about this, as I do constantly, it's always on my mind, whether I'm there or here, I can only imagine the field that God is opening for His people to reach these places down there. You know, Davao City, you all have seen it on maps. I know you have. You see it on Google Earth, on your computer. You just look at that sometime and look carefully. By the way, if you're, if you're on Google Earth, you can focus it right on Davao City. Bring it right on up close so you can see it, and you can find our seminary compound. And it says, Faith Baptist Church, Philippine Missionary Baptist Seminary on Google Earth. Can you imagine that? It's right there. But um, you can see that the port of Davao is right in the middle, the very middle of the largest archipelago region in the world. You all know that an archipelago is a nation comprised of many islands, right? 7,000 plus islands in the Philippines, 17,000 plus islands in Indonesia, eastern and western Malaysia. We are in the middle, literally in the middle, of the largest archipelago region in the world. When God moved us over there 20 years ago, we started our 21st year on August the 8th, just this month. When God moved us over there so long ago, He knew where He was planting us. We didn't know why. I mean, we knew where it was, but we had no idea the scope of ministry that the Lord was going to develop in that place. And we've tried to follow Him step by step through all of these years, and I have to admit, even at our advanced ages right now, <laughs> we're facing the greatest challenge that we've ever faced in Oceanic Asia ministries. I, I keep, just out of habit, I keep talking about Philippine ministry. Philippine, Philippine. But literally, this is broadening itself into Oceanic Asia, taking in three nations. And before very long, the missionary sailing ship Rim Nativa II We'll set sail from the port of Davao, and we can reach on the wind, at will, any of those places within the largest archipelago region in the world. I'm so pumped over that, I can hardly begin to tell you just exactly how excited I am for it. We're, we're a little bit fearful, you know, but we're not shaky. Our strength is in the Lord. We're going to trust Him and move forward. Fearful of things that we cannot answer. But we've learned a long time ago, you don't need all the answers up front. You just need to follow the Lord. 
and questions that you ask, if you cannot find an answer for those questions, never mind. Sooner or later, God is going to reveal the answer. So just walk with Him and move it forward. I want to show you a 12-minute slideshow now that will give you a little more detail about things that are going on with us right now there, both in the seminary and also with Remote Island Ministries. And in the middle of this, there is a song that you'll get to hear from our seminary choir. It was one of the songs in the presentation, the concert presentation in our Bible conference this past February. And uh, it was in a rehearsal, so that will explain why some of the kids are dressed casually with shorts and T-shirts on. And you'll notice Julie and a lot of the other young people with their native costumes on. That was because Mampala was trying to get all of those with the native costumes to wear their costumes so we could see if they looked okay and if it was going to work all right during part of the concert. Everything really went very, very well. So look at the pictures in a moment and you'll see the native costumes and especially you'll see Julie with her costume that is native to her tribe, which is the Sarangani Manobo tribe. But I'll be quiet and let you listen to the song, and then I'll start talking again after the song. Are you guys ready back there, Jeff? You got it queued up for us? I'm going to narrate this so that you'll understand what you're looking at as you're seeing. If I stand in the middle, you can see there and there, right? Okay, REM team. You know, REM and team both are acronyms. Oh, I can see there. Good. Remote Island Ministries is what REM stands for, as you all know. But we've adapted this team as an acronym, Training, Equipping, and Mobilizing Missionaries to Reach the World of Oceanic Asia. You all know that years ago when we went to the Philippines, we were one family of four going there, but we very quickly learned that to reach a large portion of that country, we had to divide responsibility or multiply responsibility by dividing uh, up all of our people and giving this one, that one, another one jobs to do. So that's what we've worked on through all of these years, multiplying by dividing and then getting people out. In our seminary right now, we have 50 students. As I was telling the class in the back, we have accommodation for 150, but budget for 50. So that's what we have right now. We're right on target with that as far as budget is concerned. But um, we've trained more than 800 students now through these 20 years. We just keep on going with that because we know that the vitality of the work is in training these young people and helping to mobilize them into these areas where they are needed to preach the gospel to people just like that little kid. Here are some of these guys. The two of them in the foreground right there are two of our pastors, both of whom are graduates of the seminary and have gone on to pastor churches. Paula with three of the ladies there, another one of our young men, a graduate of the seminary, who is now a teacher in the seminary at this time. There's Pastor Manny who loves to play Uno. And uh, Karen and Michael know that. If you ever come over like they did, <laughs> you'll have to practice your UNO game because Brother Manny's going to get you to play. We had a great time, by the way, when they were there last year, and we're looking forward to your coming back in 2014. Wow, we're planning a great conference already and uh, really looking forward to their participation. Some others also coming, and uh, we're going to encourage... Uh, as many as possible to come and join in the conference, also in uh, some voyaging. We're going to be drilling water wells, Brother Steve. Uh, you know, it, I, I love that guy there, but he's going to have to come show me how to drill a water well. We've got the equipment now, thanks to him. He showed me where to get it, and we've got it, but I don't know the first thing about drilling a water well. But we're going to drill some water wells over there for these people in these villages. You're looking at the seminary. There, you all have seen photographs of this. It's still a very beautiful building, very well suited to the work that we do. But you know, when you see these pictures, you say, well, that, yeah, it's really pretty, but it's just an empty building until you put people in it. It's to put people in, like these. Now, our choir song is coming up, and I want you to hear this song. Paula's really thankful for the choir. When she started this choir in 94, there were nine. That choir right there had 95 members in it. How about that? Listen to this song. I hope you'll get a blessing from it.
Wow. They love to sing, don't they, Brother Michael? We love for them to sing. They also love to study the Word of God. Look at these photographs in the library, in the conference room, in the classrooms. Uh, folks, this is what's making a difference in Philippines. To train young people who are eager to preach the Word, to minister the Word, and not fearful to take the Word of God to their own country. In our Bible conference this year, our pastor, Brother Robert Harris, was speaker. Brother Larry Clements also was one of our speakers. Brother Jeff Llewellyn from Hyde Park, West Monroe, whom you all know. Uh, Brother Mike Maxwell was also one of our speakers. Hillcrest Baptist, Ackworth, Georgia. Uh, Brother Jim Crane, Calvary Minden, he was there with us as one of the speakers. And then Brother Brian Sellers, our Secretary Treasurer of Missions. We had two ladies also. Our pastor's wife, Sherry, was one of the speakers for the ladies. And then a friend of ours, Jerry Molden from California, was one of the speakers for the ladies. And then our son, Matt, was the worship leader. We had a really great conference, 182 churches represented this year. And uh, almost 500 in regular attendance, more than 600 during the Wednesday night choir concert. We had souls saved during the, the conference this year, too. But you know what? We train the missionaries, then we have to equip them. You all have helped load out these containers so many times right over here at the warehouse. Look at that. Remember when we put that stove in there last year, Brother Norman? Remember that? There it is unloaded, and there Paula and Glenn are really happy to have it. That came from Timberlakes Baptist in Woodlands, Texas, and they uh, gave our seminary kitchen a brand new stove, and boy, is it nice. You'll be impressed when you see that, Karen. But look at all of the boxes. This almost looks like the warehouse over here at, at uh, uh, Calvary, doesn't it? But it's on the other side of the world. There we all are. It's nice to load all of that with forklifts here, but we, we unload it hand over hand over there. But you know what? We can strip out a container in an hour's time. Really, because we have that many people doing it. Anyway, training, equipping, then mobilizing. And you all have seen the photographs of our little boat, Nativa. We still have it. I was hoping to sell it a year ago. It never did sell. I pulled off the for sale signs. We've continued to use it. And um, I don't know if the Lord wants us to sell it. He'll send a buyer one of these days. But right now we have two boats in our missionary fleet. The old one, we've used seven years, and now this new one that's nearing completion. Um, we have it in our home port now. We're continuing to work on it. We've already made our voyage from the port of Jensan, General Santo City, over to Davao. Very, very good. I'm very pleased with the stability of the vessel. And some of our men, that's Rex right there. You can recognize Rex right out on the point of that bowsprit. We're rigging it. We're getting it ready for the sails and doing all of that kind of stuff that has to be done right now. And I'm hoping between now and the end of the year, we'll be able to just about get finished with it. There she is underway. And as I said, she's very stable. Now, in April, we owed the shipyard $77,000. Right now, tonight, we owe the shipyard $21,000. Amen? So we're getting this thing paid down thanks to the faithful people of the Lord's churches right here in the United States. I want to be able to finish paying for that by the end of September. Will you all please pray? Please pray with us that we can finish paying off the shipyard at the end of September because then we can put all of our financing into finishing the vessel. Now, these pictures you see here are, are already two or three months old. You look on our Facebook page, my Facebook page in particular, you can see new pictures of it. It looks a whole lot more finished now than what it did in those pictures right there. But uh, very soon you're going to see the standing and running rigging and the masts and sails and all of that up on the boat. So you pray for us, please. I've got a big task ahead of me. Pray for Paula and Julie. They're not going with me in 11 days when I return. They're going to have to stay. Paula needs to help care for her mom from now through the end of December. They will be coming in January. Paula's mom, Sister Magnus, some of you remember her perhaps, is suffering with the early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia. I don't know what the difference is, if there is really too much of a difference. But she's really becoming very feeble, both in mind and body. And Paula has to take care of her mom. So please, please pray for Paula in that and pray for her mom. And uh, pray for us in the work because we have to divide our time between here and there to take care of her mom 
And being over there, being separated, it's a little bit difficult, as you all can well imagine. But God is good to help us along the way, giving us the courage and the strength that we need to move the work forward. And we're very excited. As I said a moment ago, as old as we are and as long as we've been doing it, I've never, ever been so excited about what the Lord has laid before us. Um, we both had birthdays back in July. We're not. I can tell you this. We've never been as old before as what we are right now. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't see the words on that. There's tiny words in that little hymnal. While we were trying to sing and my arm wasn't long enough, I kept trying to look over Jeff's shoulder, but he's so stingy with his book, he wouldn't show it to me. Uh, my eyesight is not what it once was, but my vision is greater than ever by the grace of God. My hearing is not what it was. Paul says amen to that, constantly telling me, you can't hear a thing. But I tell you what I can hear, especially at night when it's still and quiet, in my mind, in my heart, I can hear the cries of people on islands far, far away who wonder how long it's going to be before somebody comes to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've told you stories about people who've made comments like that to me before. If in the few places that we have worked in seven years, we found so many who need to know about Jesus who have never heard, I can only imagine when we extend the boundaries of remote island ministries almost to a limitless horizon how many people we're going to find who need to know about the Lord. People who are waiting, and they've been waiting for a long time. Folks, by the grace of God, many of them will not wait much longer because we will be there. We will drop anchor off of their coastlines. We will go ashore with the Word of God, the love and the grace of God in our hearts to tell the poor people that Jesus saves. Thanks to you and many like you, these things will be done. Do you have your Bibles with you tonight? Did you bring a Bible? Hold it up. Let me see your Bible. Amen. Praise the Lord. Ang pulong sa Dios, maayong balita. The Word of God is good news. We have it here. Open your Bibles, please, tonight for just a moment to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. You find a familiar verse right here? Oh, that's good. I can see that. <laughs> Thank you. You find this familiar verse right here. Let's read it. Would you read it together with me in unison on the count of three? Usa, duha, tulo. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Let's just focus on this one verse for a little while tonight. I'm like Juna Bay. Brother Juna Bay, one of our co-pastors over there, fellow missionaries, says, When the preacher has only one verse to read, the sermon is very long. <laughs> when he has many verses to read, his sermon is very short. I only have one verse tonight, so well, you can take it from there. But I can promise you, if June were here, he would be shaking his head now because he knows Pastor Glenn can be long-winded. I'll try not to be so much tonight. Have you ever read about that place, Caesarea Philippi? Trey, have you read about that place? There were two Caesareas in ancient Palestine. There was one that was called Caesarea Maritima, which is Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritime. That was really a very nice place. It was like a vacation spot. And if you look at the history of this, you realize that during the days of Pontius Pilate, when he was governor of Judea, he actually spent very little time in Jerusalem because he despised the Jews. And he did not want to be in Jerusalem because there was such a concentration of religious zealots. 
He chose rather to live mostly in Caesarea Maritime. He built a palace there. And he had a nice vacation home right there on the Mediterranean Sea. You want to know, well, where is Caesarea Maritime in the ancient period? That is the modern port of Haifa in Israel. So if you look on your globe or your map and you find Haifa, you can find the ruins of Caesarea Maritima. There's another Caesarea. This one was like a, a summer vacation spot because it's up in the mountains. It's right on the lower slopes of Mount Hermon, up there where it's very cool all the time. It's probably a whole lot like Baguio in the Philippines. Baguio is the winter capital of the Philippines. We never have winter over there, but a lot of the people, especially the wealthy people, whenever they want a little bit of a break from the, the heat and humidity of the Philippines, they make a run up to Baguio and they'll stay up there for a while because it's much cooler. Caesarea Philippi was like that. But what really put Caesarea Philippi on the map was the fact that it was a shrine for ancient gods and goddesses. It was a Mecca of idolatry. Many people from around there came to that place to revere the various gods and goddesses of the local pantheon. That of the Phoenicians, that also of the Egyptians, but also they had gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman pantheon. You could find so many different gods and goddesses in that place because they'd made a place for it. You see, they had carved out an area of the mountain and made a large flat, solid rock platform that carved away the face of the mountain and made it a semicircular design. And in the face of that mountain, they had carved out many holes, niches that had small shelves on them. And these were places where people would come and they would put their idols in those niches. And many people would come there to that place in order to worship the idols that were put there. I want us to try to feature this for uh, just a few moments. As Jesus came with the twelve apostles to that place, Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them this very important question. Now, the time element of this was when Jesus and the apostles were going further up the mountain where he would be transfigured before them. You all remember reading about the transfiguration of Christ. So this was the time. En route to the place where he would be transfigured, they stopped in this area, Caesarea Philippi. Now, you can imagine Jesus in the presence of all of the people there. And from what we understand, there would always be many people there. It's a whole lot like people in the Philippines, people in Central America, South America, people in Catholic societies, who always go to the various shrines where they're going to worship their pagan god and goddess. Now, they're called the god Jesus, but you know it's not. they call the goddess Mary, but you know it's not. It's idolatry. Now, I mentioned this some months back in a place, and we had one person there who was Catholic and said, at the end of that, said, you know, I take exception to what you said. And I said, do you really? We need to talk because you need to know Jesus. Anyway, he, he, he wasn't really very kind to me. And he perceived by that that I wasn't being kind to him. I really was. But you know what? The fact is, we need to be honest with people. When people are revering an image that has eyes that cannot see, mouths that cannot speak, and ears that cannot hear, they're worshiping a false god. Now, I cannot say to you that these are dead gods because anything that never had life to begin with cannot be classified as being something that's dead. They're totally inanimate, worthless things that command the devotion of so many thousands of people in our world. An interesting thing, Pastor. You know that dormitory right there beside the seminary, adjacent to the seminary? That's been for sale for a long time, remember? It was bought earlier this year by a Filipino doctor who has turned it into a barracks for students from India who are studying in the medical schools there in Davao. Right now, today, in Davao, there are 172 young Indian college students living adjacent to Faith Baptist Church and Philippine Missionary Baptist Seminary. How cool is that? We're talking about mostly Hindu students who are right there, and guess what's happening? The manager of that barracks has opened the barracks to Faith Baptist Church and the PMBS to send students over there to minister one-on-one 
to those Hindu students. These are young people who came from India worshiping many of the gods and goddesses of that Hindu religion, over 300,000 in their pantheon. But look at the opportunity that God has made available to us right there beside our seminary while we're training those students to reach their world for Christ. And a big part of the world of India has come to us next door. Imagine that. I cannot help but see the hand of God working in these kinds of things. But, you know, you can imagine people worshiping these false gods and goddesses. Now, feature for a moment, here's Jesus. He's the Son of the living God. But more than that, the Bible teaches us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, can you imagine for a moment the Maker of all things, the One who fashioned the mountains, the One who made the trees, the One who made the animals with the ivory, the One who put the gold and the silver in the ground, is in a place where people are worshiping gods of wood and ivory and gold and silver. The very one who made the people and gave them breath to breathe is there watch, watching them worship false gods and goddesses. The one true and living God incarnate in the presence of all of those people watching them as they went about their routines of ritualistic worship of idols. This must have broken the heart of the Son of God as He watched all of that. At any moment, He could have taken the breath from their bodies and they would have wilted on the ground dead. At any moment, He could have melted the gold and the silver images that were there. At any moment, He could have obliterated that mountainside so there would be no more shrine. But you know what He did? He brought those twelve disciples of His to that place in the presence of all of that. He turned and He asked them the question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They could tell you what God or goddess these were on the wall, but they had no clue that the God of all eternity was standing right there in their presence. Are you with me? Do you get the sense of all of this now? You talk about a dramatic circumstance, but this must have been, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus asked the twelve. Now, they gave some answers. First answer they said, Some say you're John the Baptist. And that was interesting. When John began his ministry, some people said to him, you must be Jesus. You must be the Messiah, the one we're waiting for. John said, no, I'm only a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. I'm not worthy to even remove his sandals. When John saw Jesus coming there that day at the Jordan River, he called attention to Christ as he shouted. And I can imagine John had a big, powerful voice. His booming voice echoing across the mountains there as he looked across and he saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. But when Jesus asked, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say you're John the Baptist. Remember, it was Herod that cut off the head of the Baptist. Have you ever thought about how he must have suffered in his sleep because of that? Herod actually enjoyed listening to John, enjoyed talking to him on occasion. Herod was a man who looked him straight in the eye, who listened as John opened his mouth and preached the Word of God. Herod heard that. But that day came when Herod had to make good of a promise that he had made so vainly and cut off the head of the Baptist. Those eyes that Herod had gazed into so often, now lifeless, fixed in a dead body. A mouth that had spoken so often the words of eternal God now gaped open because the head of the Baptist had been cut off and laid on a platter and served like a pot roast or something like that. Can you imagine the times that Herod must have suffered in his sleep? 
awakening with a cold sweat, thinking, what have I done? Oh, what have I done? Because he cut off the head of the Baptist. Herod was a descendant of the Herod that killed all of those boy babies in Bethlehem. He's that kind of a fellow. When he heard about the ministry of Jesus, remember what Herod said? John, have I beheaded? But who is this? Someone probably said, hey, he's John. Come back to life. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Elijah was a bold preacher of the Word of God. He was a powerful man of God. He was a simple man. And the way he dressed, the foods that he ate, the needs that he had. He was a man accustomed to the supply of the grace of God at every hand. The day came when God said to Elijah, Go to the palace of Ahab and there declare my word of judgment that is coming. He did. He spoke to Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel and backed out and let God be God. When they looked at Jesus, they said, You know what? You must be just like what Elijah was. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. We know Jeremiah mainly as the weeping prophet, remember? You cannot read the lamentations of Jeremiah without seeing all of the pathos of Jeremiah, the prophet of God, as he wept for the people of God because they had turned away from God. Jeremiah, through all of his ministry, declaring the Word of God, making one appeal after another to the people of God, only to find no one listening to him, all of the people mocking him, many of them threatening him, and yet he remained faithful to give them the Word of God. And some people say, real men don't cry. Give me a break. Jeremiah cried for his people. What's the shortest book, shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Can you feature why they may have said, oh, you're like Jeremiah? Why? Because of the numerous times that Jesus cried. He sighed. He groaned in the Spirit. He stood there on the Mount of Olives looking down at Jerusalem and cried out, Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! You who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, how often would I have gathered you as the hen gathers her chicks, and yet you would not. And I can feature the hot, salty tears of Christ streaming down His face when He said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Yes, Jesus knew what it was to cry. And some people said, You're like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. If not John, if not Elijah, if not Jeremiah, then maybe one of the other prophets. Maybe about that time, Brother Mike, they were talking about, oh, well, it could have been this, could have been that. But Jesus zeroed in on them with his second question, which was the point of the whole thing. He didn't need to know what the people were saying about him. He knew. He knew the Pharisees in Jerusalem told the man out of whom Jesus cast demons. They said to that guy, he's casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. He knew what they said about him. He could read their minds. He knew what were in their thoughts. At times when they would take him and make him a king, he knew it, Trey. And he backed out and hid himself and went away. He knew what people were thinking and what they were saying. On every hand, when his disciples tussled over who was greatest in the kingdom, he heard every one of those conversations. Just like he knows what you and I are thinking right now. He didn't need the information. What are people saying about me? But he wanted these men to answer his second question. When he asked them, who say ye that I am? Now, you know, he could have asked any number of people beside the twelve. Ah, he could have asked the man who was born blind in Jerusalem. Sitting along the wayside there is... Jesus and his disciples walked by. Remember, they asked the Lord a question. They said, Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it's not this man nor yet his parents. 
but that the glory of God should be revealed in him. And he stooped down and he spat on the ground and he, he took some of that, that dust and spittle and he worked it together between his fingers. And then he, had, he put that like a mud mask on the face of that fellow and then said, Go now and wash in the pool of Siloam. Can you all feature this? Mud being put in your eyes? Are you serious? And this is not a, a mud mask that you might get at the salon, by the way. This is mud in your eye. That would be a painful thing, wouldn't it? But Jesus said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I can feature that poor fellow with that mud on his face. I mean, when I was a kid, I made mud pies too, didn't you? I'd get that mud all over me, but I had better sense and put it in my eyes. Jesus said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And this man, you can imagine, groping for someone to help him, leading him then to the pool. And when he got to the pool, he would feel the rim of the pool and the water that was there, so fresh and clean. And he splashed it in his face to wash the mud from his eyes. And you know what happened. When he opened his eyes, he could see what a glorious thing it was that Jesus had done for him. The Pharisees asked him, who did this? He said, a man named Jesus anointed my eyes and sent me to wash in the pool. I washed and I came seeing. You ask him, what can you say about Jesus? Who say ye that Jesus is? He said it to the Pharisees. He said, why, this is a marvelous thing. For it's never been told that a man born blind was given his sight. What can I say about Jesus? I tell you, He did the one thing for me that I desired all of my life. The one thing that only He could do. That's what I can tell you about Jesus. He's the man who gave me sight. There were ten lepers one day. They saw Jesus and His disciples passing along the road. They called out to him together, Lord, if you will, you can make us clean. And Jesus spoke to them saying simply, I will be clean. And suddenly, in an instant, no sooner had the words of Christ echoed off the walls of the buildings around that the men looked down at their hands and their feet and they thought, the leprosy is gone. I am well. The Bible tells us how that nine of them hurried away. You can imagine the excitement. With one of them, and he, a Samaritan, came back to Jesus. Fell down at the feet of the Lord and worshipped Him and thanked Him personally for what He did. And then Jesus let him go home. Ask Him, who say you that Jesus is? He might give you and me an answer like this saying, I was a dead man walking. I was losing my life every single day as my flesh was so infected and rotting away. I'd been banished from society. I could no longer work my job. I would see my wife and I would call to her from a distance. Oh, my dear sweetheart, I love you. Oh, how I love you. I long to come home. But I cannot. I would see my children. And they would cry after me. And I would say, Daddy loves you so much. Oh, how I, I want to hug you. But I cannot. Oh, my life is over. Who can I say Jesus is? He gave me my family back. He gave me my job back. He let me go home. He took the disease that was so terrible and so dreaded among our society and He wiped it all away. He did for me the one thing that no one else could do. He gave me my life back. That's what I can tell you about Jesus. One day in Jerusalem as Jesus was teaching a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Remember the story? brought in and thrust down right in front of Jesus, ashamed and naked. 
Pharisees began to point their long fingers of accusation, saying, This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now the law says she should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? The way that is written in the original language indicates that they continued asking him the question over and over and over. What do you say? What can you say about this case? Jesus answered the question, what do you say? The Bible tells us how that he stooped down and with his finger began to write on the ground. After a few moments of writing, he rose. He looked at those accusers and he said, Let him who is without sin first cast a stone at her. And he stooped down again. And there on the earth, he continued writing. Now, we don't know what he was writing. But I can imagine the oldest of the men came because of curiosity and looked over the shoulder of Christ to see could be that he saw his own name being written there. For truly they that depart from the Lord shall be written in the earth. Perhaps the oldest of those men, when he saw his name there, he thought, Oh, no, that's my name he's writing there. I cannot do this. And he dropped his stones and walked away. Another out of curiosity may have said, Why? What is that? What is that? Oh, no, it's my name. He's written my name. How did he know my name? No, I cannot do this. And he dropped his stone and he would go away. From the eldest to the youngest, the Bible says, they left. And Jesus stood up again and looked at the woman. And he asked her the question, Where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. In her shame, she may have been thinking, This rabbi is going to lower the boom on me. Who can tell how much time may have passed just in that little bit of time when Jesus was looking at her right in the eye? And for the first time in her life, a man looked at her face to face who really loved her. And he spoke these words so full of grace, saying, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So unexpected was this statement of grace from this stranger named Jesus. But you ask that woman, what can, what can you say about Jesus? What say ye of Christ? She probably would say something like this to us tonight. I was ashamed. I was condemned. I deserve to die. I was caught in the snare of immorality. Oh, how I had wanted so often to break free from that. How many times I had said, no, I will not do this again, only to find myself going right back to it. I thought there was no way of escape. I thought of killing myself. Until one day I saw in the face of that man named Jesus, one who loved me, what can I say about him? When I deserved to die, when I stood condemned and filthy, He forgave me and He cleansed me and He gave me power to rise above my immorality. I tell you, this is what I say about Jesus. Why would Jesus ask anyone? Because those whom He would ask were those who had had experiences with Him. Like those three examples. Like the twelve apostles. They knew Him better than anybody else in their world. You know that? They knew Jesus better than His own brothers and sisters knew Him. Because they trusted in Him. Listen, they'd walked the long roads with Jesus. They had talked with Jesus. They'd asked Him questions. They'd heard His answers. They knew how many pieces of bread and fish there were in the sack that the little boy gave when Jesus fed the 5,000. They knew. 
Maybe nobody else knew. All those people, can you imagine? Eating that bread and fish. Maybe none of the rest of those people knew. How many pieces of bread? Five pieces of bread. Two little fish in the sack that Jesus blessed and broke and said, Feed the multitudes. Those twelve men knew how many bread and pieces of bread and fish there were. They knew more about Jesus than anybody else. They saw Him cast out demons, give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb. They saw Him raise the dead to life again. They knew more about Him through their own personal experience than anybody else in their world at their time. That's why Jesus would ask them that question. By your own experience, what say ye of Christ? It was Peter that spoke and answered for the whole group. Remember what he said. Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want to ask you a question. What has the Father in heaven revealed to you about who Jesus is? Because if He would reveal that to Simon Peter, He has surely revealed it to you and me. Who say ye that Jesus is? Because you see, through personal experience, just like our three examples, and just like the twelve, you and I can tell our world who Jesus is. And how? By telling them what He's done to us. Many of us met the Lord at a young age. How old were you when you got saved? Tell you about me, I was ten at Landmark Baptist Church in Gould, Arkansas. Thursday night revival meeting in the month of July. Hot, have mercy. Mosquitoes, you breathe them in Gould, Arkansas. But that was the night I got saved. My life was not traumatic. I didn't suffer with drug addiction and alcoholism. My parents were not like so many. They loved me and my brother and my sister and took us to church. I mean, if we were not going to church, we were going to get ready for church. (laughs) Or we were coming home from church. I had faithful pastors like Eugene Sperling, Audie Brown, Dove Spires, Dan Malik. Men who loved the Lord and who loved me and wanted me to grow up loving the Lord. And I did. My life story, you might say, well, it's kind of boring, isn't it? I never did a stint in prison. But the worst thing I ever did was get a, a ticket for speeding, and I thought, man, that's the most awful thing. Oh, nobody saw me. But that doesn't mean I don't have anything to tell my world about what Jesus has done for me. I can tell you firsthand what it is to stand with an automatic weapon trained on me right between my eyes. With me telling that person whose hand is on the trigger, you may shoot me, but before you do, I'm going to tell you about the one who loved you so much that he's already done what's necessary to forgive you of your crime of murder. I want to tell you about Jesus. And talk to that guy until he lowered his weapon and let me walk away. I walked away thinking any time he's going to shoot me right in the back. But he didn't. I can tell you about a man who approached me one night in a plaza where we were preaching the Word of God and he had a sword. It's like a machete. A big long crook on it. It's a Muslim sword. And he approached me and looked me straight in the face and he said, I have come to kill you but how can I kill the man of God? Only to lean, lean over and lay the sword right at my feet and turn and walk away. Brethren, I can tell you what Christ has done for me. Time after time after time after time. I know who Jesus is. 
I'm not ashamed to tell our world who Jesus is. I can tell them because of personal experience. You don't have to have had some kind of dramatic thing like that in your life to tell your world who Jesus is. Chances are you know Him better than the people around you. You may know Him better than your spouse does, better than your children, better than your parents. You may know the Lord better than the clerk at the grocery store. You may know Him better than the teller at the bank. You may know Him better than the doctors and nurses that care for your health. Chances are you know Jesus better than most people around you. What are you saying to your world about Jesus? Well, the world's saying plenty about Jesus. You can bet on that. But it's not right, is it? So those of you, people like me, who have had those in-person, up-close experiences with Christ that know the most about Him, and we have so much to say to our world. You students, going back to school right now, in your classroom, more than likely you know Jesus better than anybody else in your classroom. What are you going to tell your class about Jesus? You say, I'm ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of you. I'm afraid. He wasn't afraid to die for you. They might mock me. They mocked him. Thank God, when Jesus went to the cross, he went there freely, willingly, so that you and I can be saved. What has He delivered you from? Have you had an illness that you thought was going to take your life only to find healing in the touch of a precious Savior who loved you too much to let you go? Who when you and others around you cried out in the nighttime, Oh God, please bring healing. Restore health. To find that He answers those kinds of prayers. When your moms have seen children, perhaps injured, lying on a bed, life hanging by a thread, you pray for those children, and you see the miraculous hand of God raise those children up again to life, to health, restoring them so they can go on with their lives. Precious babies, feverish. I can tell you a time when Paula took a child in the Philippines in her arms, was burning up with fever because of malaria, convulsive, vomiting, vomiting blood, and thinking this child is going to die. But no one would take the child. They all laid the child down and backed away because they knew the child would die, and she took the child in her arms. We were so far up in the mountains, Brother Michael, there's nothing we could do. But we prayed. God, touch this child. Spare life. He did. The child lived. What has Christ done in your life? Don't you have something you can tell your world about what Christ is to you? Because just like those twelve disciples, if you and I are not telling our world Who's left to tell? Nobody's going to tell the world what Christ has done and who Jesus is. If you and I are not the ones to do it, we can always say, not now. I don't have time. Maybe later. But later will never come. You have no time like right now. This is the time. Oh, dear ones, Can we not just tell the world who Jesus is? God bless you all. Thank you. Please forgive me. We're your missionaries way over there. We're going farther and farther afield than we've ever gone before, but it's for one reason. It's because we know people in those places who never have heard the name of Jesus. We intend to them, for them to hear. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your prayers. God bless you all. Thank you.